thank you all for joining us on LinkedIn. This is the reboot of episode five of the Gamify Everything podcast, Beyond the Metaverse. I'm your host, Marcus Howard, and I'm joined again by Lowell Stevens. Thank you for joining us, Lowell. Yeah, no problem. It's always a pleasure to be here and talk with you. Yeah, and for those of you who are listening to this, as once it gets to the audio form or seeing this on YouTube, we are re-recording this audio or this video episode because we had a conversation two or three days ago and I didn't have everything set up properly. So we had an awesome conversation. None of it got recorded. So we're just going to have most of that conversation again today. And just some quick housekeeping items. Uh, this episode and this podcast is powered by Gamify. It's an IDO platform for launching gamified startups, whether that be blockchain games, companies in the metaverse, people using crypto and NFTs, anything gamified is, is what the IDO platform is about. And you can find their listing on PancakeSwap. So without further ado, Lowell, thank you for joining us and, and tell, please, the community a little bit about your background in professional gaming, and then we'll get into the stuff you're doing in the metaverse now. Yeah, sure. Um, so, well, when I was in high school, I was a professional Halo player for a few years. Um, I'd like to tell people that back then, that was when winning a tournament got you 50 bucks and, you know, like a gift card to Applebee's or something. Um but yeah, it was it was really fun. It was something I enjoyed and then ended up moving away from that. And it's funny, when I was 17 or 18, uh, I founded a 3D design company with my brothers and my friends. Um, and we made design assets for uh, Envato Elements and other online asset marketplaces. Um, and I, I promise that'll be relevant in just a minute. So after college, I moved to... Uh, Asia. I lived in South Korea, the capital of esports, and I lived in Taipei for a while. Um, and I actually got introduced to the esports world again because of my girlfriend at the time in Taiwan. Her, one of her best friends was Sword Art. Uh, if you guys know League of Legends, Sword Art is one of the world's winning champions, uh, supports for League of Legends. He played for uh, Flash Wolves at a time. And um, yeah, so I got introduced back to that world. It was really fascinating. I ended up moving back to Korea. And uh, got a job working for Gen G, and I was working as a product designer, and also I helped develop their uh, online academy. So I was in charge of creating programs for them and kind of growing that online academy. Um, that created a pipeline for pro players or teenagers to become pro players, and uh, it was a really rewarding experience. Something I really enjoyed. And then recently, I moved back to the United States and founded Fox and Farthing which is my uh, VR design firm. Uh, I'm technically the founder. I call myself the creative director because I, I prefer to tell people what I do, not what I want to be. So um, I'm the creative director. I do most of the creative stuff. And I have a staff of about six people distributed across two continents. So That's dope. And thank you for joining us, Aziza. I know we have eight others here. I, I can't see any of your names, but if you want to just... Uh, give us a shout out in the chat. We'd love to, to thank you directly for being supportive of, of the Gamify Everything podcast and esports and the metaverse. Lowell, I, I didn't get a chance to ask you about this when we had this conversation a couple of days ago, but you brought it back up. So you, you didn't go to South Korea for esports initially. No, I didn't. You just no. like accidentally got back into esports? <laughs> How does that work? Who just yeah, so, goes to South Korea? It's, it's so funny. Uh, my friends moved to Korea. And they were going to teach English, right? And so I moved there. Uh, I was lonely, basically. No, I, I actually, here's what happened. Uh, my friends contacted me and they were like, hey, you should move to Korea. 
And I was like, no, I'm graduating. You know, I've, I got a degree in English. I was like, I'm going to use this useless degree for something. I swear to God, um, I'm going to force it. Right. And so it turned out around March of 2015, right before I was about to graduate from college, uh, the terror of the oncoming living in a bus under the bridge came to me. Um, and I was like, you know what? Maybe I should figure out something else. So my friends were like, come to Korea. It's great. Teach English for a year. Figure out what you're going to do. And so I uh, broke up with my girlfriend, sold everything I owned, dropped out of grad school, moved <laughs> across the world to Korea. And uh, I taught English for about a year uh, before I got into the tech industry in Taipei. So I moved from Korea to Taipei, lived in Taiwan for about a year and a half working as a UX designer. And then I ended up moving back to work in esports. So it's kind of how that went. <laughs> it was a little bit of a, a spur of the moment decision that ended up uh, putting me on another continent for six years. But it was very enjoyable. I love it. Uh, my Korean still sucks, though. So if you ask me anything, it's not going to be really accurate, I promise. <laughs> I, I did something similar. Uh, I, I didn't move to another continent, but I was working at Georgia Southern. And one of my former coworkers from the first job I had when I graduated from college, where actually I was interning as I was getting my undergrad degree in IT, uh, we were writing code for and building apps. Um, and he said, hey, there's this new company that's spawning up in, in Tampa, basically building uh, software that helps restaurants digitize their menus. So when you go in, you can order from an iPad. And when you're ready to leave, instead of waiting on the hostess, you can just pay and leave. So he said, hey, they're going to probably offer you like whatever the number was. It was like double or triple what I was making because I was working at the university. I said, man, I'll be there in two weeks. So I put in my two weeks notice and my brother was pissed off at me for forever because like he and I were living at a fraternity house and he and I were living on the bottom floor. Uh, so uh -huh. you know, both of us were we had separate rooms, obviously, but both of us like were responsible for like the living rooms and the, the kitchen and all that stuff. And I basically like packed up just a duffel bag full of stuff for like three or four days with the clothes, got my guitar. And then my buddy drove here from Tampa and picked me up and drove me back down to Tampa. I left everything else there. He's, my dog was there. He's like, man, oh how God. you doing that? You can't just leave me with all this. He was pissed. I remember doing the same thing, man. I, I, I think the only thing I didn't sell was my, uh, my book collection. And I, I had a lot. I had probably 300. I, I've, I've got about, 200 pounds of books in my parents' attic somewhere uh, that I haven't yet retrieved. <laughs> so yeah, I understand the feeling, man. But it's it's liberating to like kind of pack everything into a suitcase. You don't really have anything, but you don't need or want anything either. And that, that big move, I that's something I'm kind of addicted to. So in the future, who knows? I, I've been telling people I'm probably going to move to Estonia at some point um, since they have a really robust digital uh, ecosystem there as far as the startup community. So I don't know. Yeah, I, I'm totally with you. It's, it's exciting. It's fun. It's, uh, it's very enjoyable. Every time I have to move, I, I instantly regret owning things. <laughs> exactly, exactly. I hate cleaning. And the only thing I hate more than cleaning is moving because it's like cleaning and then moving. Right. Yeah. It's, yeah, you can't just throw it in the box. Right. For sure. It's, uh, definitely a, a good way to go is just hiring someone. Yeah. So, you know, back back to the topic of the podcast, and this is about the metaverse and NFTs and Gamify everything. I just want to, again, take a quick minute to talk about your journey at at Gen G and mm -hmm. the education piece. Yeah. Because as we discussed a couple of days ago, like, I think the biggest issue in metaverse and NFT space, the crypto blockchain space as a whole, is a lack of education. 
So you yeah. talk a little bit more about what you were doing with Gen G and obviously sure. it wasn't the metaverse side, but yeah, right. So, well, what happened was uh, I was actually, you know, really interested in, in esports, particularly League of Legends. Uh, I was wildly addicted to it. I spent probably got at least a, a thousand, two thousand hours a year uh, playing League of Legends. I'm talking, well, I was playing around 2,500 games a year, which was just an insane number. And I was just like, I was obsessed with it, right? And so I was, I was watching esports, I was living, breathing esports. Um, and when this happened, I, you know, as I started to get into the world, I realized there was like a distinct lack of professionalism. You know, and you can't really blame the kids. A lot of these esports players, they dropped out of high school or they didn't really finish high school correctly because they were practicing so much. They didn't have a whole lot of uh, chances to get any kind of mentorship as far as, you know, handling the nitty gritty business details of being a professional athlete. So I decided to put together um, a curriculum and I did. And I, I put it together and I went to Genji. Actually, here's what I did I sent an email to every single esports academy in Seoul. And uh, there was about 19 of them. And I got two emails back. One was from uh, Matthew Koo of Matthew Koo of uh, uh, Game Coach Academy. They're pretty famous. Mm-hmm. And uh, he's like, thanks, but no thanks. Basically, I don't want to deal with your visa. I was like, okay, that's fine. And then the second one was from Gen G. It was from uh, Matt Joseph Beck at, at Gen G. Joseph was a fantastic guy, one of my favorite people ever. Um, well, one thing that really impressed me was Genji's willingness or interest in, in exploring or expanding the world of esports. Um, and so, yeah, so they brought me in for a little meeting. It was like a 15 minute thing. And they're basically like, hey, I'm not sure if we can make this work, but we'll do our best. Ended up uh, being able to go on at the Genji Global Academy, Genji Esports Academy, and uh, start working there. So I, I was teaching about half the time, then half the time I was doing some product design things. So, um, yeah, it was, it was a fantastic experience. It was really interesting as far as everything is concerned, but it was great because some of the stuff I was covering, the students had no idea about, um, and you know, they, they really couldn't. So I would role play with them. Actually, we would do things like, um, I would pretend to be a, a sponsor and I would make them, uh, negotiate sponsorship with me. And they'd be like, well, want I have an agent that'll do this? I'm like, no. no you won't (laughs) it's just not gonna happen it's gonna be you in a room with six white guys in suits and they're gonna talk to you like this and you got to figure out how to do it right and i taught them how to walk away from bad deals i taught them how to manage social media um how to deal with coaches teammates Uh, and then we also did a pretty large module on in-game communication we watched communication by uh, navy seals by uh, army rangers and by other special ops and talked about like mic control how to uh, keep the airway clear unless you're you're saying something of value, suppressing emotional, you know, uh, communication, things like that. And that was really interesting as well because um, it's been really helpful for them. And that they've actually sent me this messages. Some of my ex students recently were telling me that they got uh, positions at at teams because of the stuff we talked about. And some of them have talked about how it's really helped them train their teammates on uh, mic discipline, not just yelling into the mic constantly and you know celebrating or swearing or whatever, and and that's been kind of cool to see the in, the real world impact of what I what I developed. 
That, that's awesome. I've, I've seen, I guess, over the last year and a half, maybe two years now, since you know everyone went 100% remote. You know, these camps, esports camps, crop up, and some are partnered with larger organizations, some are partnered with traditional, you know, athletic equipment companies. Yeah. And when I see them, and I see, you know, kind of a review of the curriculum, it feels like it's just kind of summer camp for the sake of summer camp, not anything that's going to actually make you be a competitive player. So I'm glad to hear that you were giving, you know, real value, dropping gems, as we say on the, the E for Life podcast. Yeah. I, and that was the thing was like, I was really obsessed with a not coddling them. Um, I was a pretty, I was when I was in the classroom, you know, versus my time out of the classroom, when I was in the classroom, I was pretty brutal as far as being a coach for them. Um, and if, you know, if they messed up or if they, if they said something stupid, that like something that could get them fired or could get them uh, to lose out on real money, I would put that up on the board. I would, I'd be like, look, guys, if you do this in real life, if you do this at a team, not only will you be fired, you're going to lose your sponsorships, you're going to do this and this and this. And I think putting that in a real monetary value for them or cost, I think that was really, really valuable in a lot of senses because uh, it kind of taught them that like you get one chance right obviously they're gamers like there's no respawn it's just like you got this one shot and if you mess up a sponsorship from nike or adidas they're not going to give you another chance they're going to have something else um and that i think that was really valuable for them actually some of them have started reaching out and getting sponsorships on their own now and uh they'll message me sometimes be like how should i word this email and i'm like oh here we'll walk you through it (laughs) it's been really exciting Awesome. Awesome. And I want to thank Aziza again for joining us live. She actually is the CEO of her own esports organization, Dynamic Focus. I believe she's up in Chicago. I might be getting that wrong. New York, Aziza, <clears throat> somewhere where it's cold right now. Uh, so if you, I know that you have published a bunch of documents. Loa, I highly recommend the two of you connect. I'm sure that you would benefit from a conversation together. Sure. Yeah. I, I'm always down to connect with other people in esports. It's you know, something very enjoyable to me. And then back on the topic of, of NFTs in, in the metaverse, uh, you know, you've been quite bold in your thought leadership in the space. You know, we, we've been connecting on LinkedIn for quite some time, but I think only really sort of, you know, actively sending messages back and forth and, and, and trying to understand opportunities to work together for the last two to three months, maybe. Right. Yeah. Uh, maybe less than that. And especially after I was able to, you know, LinkedIn has a new feature where you can subscribe to people. Uh, you know, I started seeing more and more of your posts as we started having more conversations. And now I'm subscribed because you provide the same level of contrarian uh, perspective to NFTs in the metaverse that I, I try to provide to esports and gaming. Mm-hmm. So I, I really appreciate that, even though it goes against the grain, it's it's all grounded in in fact. It's all grounded in in truth. It's all grounded in in your sincere uh, interest for having sustainability, scalability, and, and ultimately like real value for the ecosystem. Right. Well, I mean, you know, I, I am something of a, I guess a Luddite in some senses, as far as uh, cryptocurrency, I am, I, I do invest in cryptocurrency and I think that NF, I own NFTs. I've published some NFTs myself. Um, and I, I don't really necessarily disagree with everything, but I do think it's important you know, in some senses to be the devil's advocate when it comes to this, because I feel like there's so much optimism in this space. And I, I don't, you know, I smile a lot. I'm kind of a pessimist. I feel like I, I have to be the voice of pessimism when it comes to NFTs and cryptocurrency, because if I don't, 
it feels like as far as esports is concerned, everyone's just going to rush headlong into the ocean. You know, I've got to say something about it. So um, definitely not like 100% anti-crypto, anti-NFTs, but very, I would say, much more cautious about it than a lot of people. Um, but I do think that in the future, you know, obviously we've talked about this before at length. Esports has a profitability crisis, man. And it's just mm-hmm. there's there's not much you know, they can be done there with as far as making esports profitable. We've seen companies, I mean, Apple went from from a $1.5 trillion to $3 trillion valuation in the last three years, right? Mm. Esports has increased from a $1 billion valuation to a $1.2 billion valuation. It's like, I'm just not seeing the kind of, like, and, and that's with all the money that's been poured into it. Um, and so I'm not seeing, you know, where it's going to come from. I've made some, some, predictions of my own but as far as the nft space is concerned or crypto my main concern with it is that the esports scene will become reliant on that money that easy money Mm -hmm. um i i was in a talk with a a major i'm talking top line esports organization recently uh and they were telling me that they when they were looking at these cryptocurrency um sponsorships that the the cryptocurrency like um the exchanges like binance or coinbase or ftx they they don't even know what deliverables they want from these sponsorships literally it's free money put your name on our stuff we'll figure it out later um and esports is great at that yeah right yeah that's like the ideal sponsorship here's a bunch (laughs) of money and we're not going to give you any deliverables exactly esports is so good at saying hey Great. We'll put your name on our stuff and we'll pray that our players find some value in it. Um, yeah. And so, like, I think that that's unfortunately, from, me, from my perspective, that's a match made in hell. Because mm-hmm. if if this is a bubble, like a lot of people have said, if this bubble pops and these sponsorships are withdrawn, all of a sudden you've got these teams hooked on easy money, right? Where are they going to go? And as far as being too big to fail, esports is definitely not too big to fail. I don't think the government's going to have an esports bailout as much as I would like to see one. So, you know, I'm what I'm afraid of is, you know, building around this money and expecting it to be, you know, uh, forever. And then, you know, just losing that when it pops. So that's been my primary concern. The reason I've been so strong about this is because I don't think that for the most part, I don't think the gaming community is as gung ho about NFTs and crypto as a lot of people are. Hey, John, thanks for joining us. John's up in Jacksonville um, running an esports camp. Esports. John, can you type in the chat with what you're doing in esports? I know that you were, you had he had a facility. Uh, he launched it like right before the pandemic started two years ago. So now he's pivoted. Uh, I think he's doing a little league. I've, I'm embarrassed that I can't remember it since he and I have had several conversations about this over the last several weeks. I think I don't drink enough coffee for my short-term <laughs> memory. But I, I agree with you, uh, Lowell, I, that I, I see it as like two colliding hype trains. Right. And it's funny because uh, I forget Adam, I forget his last name, and I forget the platform he wrote for. There was an article about like, should esports teams like be wary about these cryptocurrency deals? And you saw like last year, like everybody was jump, jumping on a cryptocurrency deal. Yeah. And it's funny because that happened, like all the major teams have them now before like the public objection to NFTs, which has only happened in the last six, 36 months. Yeah. So now you've got all these partnerships 
where I'm assuming those crypto companies are going to want to push their wallets and their yeah. cryptos and their NFT platforms. And basically all the mainstream gamers and the game developers are, yeah. it's not happening. Yeah, it's it's got the potential to really tear this in half, you know. And like I said, like there are I, all my friends are gamers. I'm almost thirty, and all my almost thirty year old friends are still playing quite a lot, you know. So, uh, as rare as that might be, but like the thing is that we don't necessarily have anything against NFTs. I think that the implementation is being seen more as more microtransactions to the point that it's a macro transaction, right? Um, and it's being seen more as like nickel, another way to nickel and dime players to death. I think that if the implementation can be fixed in some way for games as a whole, this isn't really esports, but games as a whole. I, I mean, for esports as well, we saw Tom Brady launch autograph, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I'm a big football fan. I don't know about you. I'm a massive Eagles fan. Uh, which is disgusting. I know I throw batteries at Santa, um, but I, you know, Tom Brady launched autograph and that's right. you know, specifically for sports NFTs. I think that something like that is completely fine uh, for esports. And I've, I think I said this in my metaverse paper that teams should be looking to provide some sort of digital memorabilia because you've got a, one of the most distributed fan bases on the planet. Um, like here's you got you, there's kids in Atlanta, Georgia that are fans of T1 and Faker, right? How are they going to go watch him at at Law Park in in Seoul? They're not. They're just not going to to be able to do that, right? But if there was this is where my uh, my metaverse concept comes from is if they were able to go to a digital space, watch Faker digitally, interact with his avatar, you know, him controlling it, it's got the same thrill, the same feeling as meeting him in person. I've met Faker in person. I've met Reckless in person, right? Um, and that feeling is intense, but I've also talked to some pro players on the phone and that's the same feeling, right? Um, so I, I feel like the metaverse offers a lot of opportunities and I think NFTs are a great way to capitalize on that. But like Thomas said right here, I yeah, I'm 100% not anti-NFT or anti-crypto. I am anti-greed and I'm anti-greed because I love the industry. I don't want to see it destroyed like this. I agree. And if, if, you, if you don't mind taking a few minutes and uh, some shameless self-promotion, if you'll go get the link for your metaverse yeah, no problem. and post it in the chat so that people who are joining us live, and thank you again for joining us live, uh, can, can have access to that. And if you're listening to this on um, Amazon or Spotify, follow Lowell Stevens on LinkedIn or Marcus Howard on, on LinkedIn so you can see this video recording and get access to this link because obviously I can't send it to you through audio. I, I don't know if that technology exists yet. <laughs> if it did, that'd be fantastic. I think it, would be. it should work. If it doesn't work, please, someone in the audience, please let me know and I'll figure out another way. Now, I, I agree with you as well, though, in the metaverse play, you know, and it, we said this several times over the last couple of months, like the key is how do you add meaningful value to the end user? Not yeah. NFTs for the sake of generating revenue for whatever tier one team is desperate for profitability. And, yeah. and I, I believe that NFTs will create, a, like you said, a shot in the arm for profitability. I think it could be a highly profitable tier one team almost exclusively off of an esports, uh, like, uh, sorry, NFT metaverse play. Yeah. To your point, like, you know, I, and I'm also still concerned with what the IRS and the SEC has to think about that because I've heard. 
kind of ramblings about the IRS potentially making like every picked up digital artifact within a game, if it's an NFT, like uh, a monetizable event or a taxable event. Right. Yeah. I, I'm not a tax expert by any means, but I've, I've definitely heard that too. Mm-hmm. Um, I've had some misgivings about what the NSA's role is in cryptocurrency. I don't want to sound full, uh, you know, tin hat or whatever, but, uh, but I, you know, I have heard that the, the NSA is going to be providing that data to the IRS and there are people who have been kind of, uh, trading NFTs back and forth to themselves to raise the value. Mm-hmm. And here's my, my thing about NFTs is that a lot of this is, if you look at the wallets that are involved, a lot of this is old money, like old crypto, right? Yeah. And old crypto was probably mined by someone's GPU back in 2014, 2015, which means it has a value now of 46 million. But who's who's to say that that Ethereum wasn't sitting in their wallet for the last seven or eight years, right? So the thing is that someone who had, let's say, 200 bucks worth of electricity worth of Ethereum in their wallet, you know, and now it's suddenly worth 20 million. They trade that back and forth themselves. Now they're they owe the IRS, you know, $7 million or whatever. That's, I mean, that's, first of all, that's going to be a, a, a big buy. Uh, mm-hmm. you know, it's a lot of money to, to throw around. Um, and it's kind of, it's, I think that this year is going to be the first year that starts the official regulation of crypto. It's interesting to see where that's going to go. I agree. And we need it, you know, and when I first learned about blockchain, I was all, you know, a hundred percent decentralized, everything, uh, you know, borderline. Anarchy, maybe. <laughs> but I, I, I wanted it to be like self-regulated. And then what I've right. seen over the last 10 years, just like what I've seen over esports over the last five years, is that it, there's practically zero regulation. Like no <laughs> no esports organization is really holding other esports organizations accountable. Like yeah. Every time I see someone even like attempt to call out a team or a person on a team, everyone else in the comments jumps in and say, hey, you shouldn't do that. Like, no, yes, you should. If someone makes a mistake, you yeah. should identify that mistake and help them not make that mistake in the future and even right. give them suggestions of things to do better in the future. And, and that's what I try to do. With, at least I hope so. Like I have frequently said that the majority, not majority, uh, a significant amount of the esports ecosystem is a scam. Everything from yeah. the, the teams to the investors to agencies, uh, you know, but I also identify opportunities where we can create a sustainable and scalable future. Yeah. And I don't see like the top 10 tier one esports orgs coming together and creating some kind of governing body or, or something of that nature. And then maybe you can't even do that, but there, there, at the end of the day, there is no regulation and there has to be to protect the end user, the gamer, the consumer, the sponsor putting their money, dollars and time in. Yeah. I mean, that that's, you're exactly on the money there. I think, I've said this before. Um, you know, I actually, I literally told uh, Steve Arhanset of Team Liquid this to his face. I told him, I said, you guys need to be making a, just like the NFL has a, have a, has an owner's association, there needs to be an LCS owner's association for League of Legends. And you guys need to be pushing back against Riot and getting some of this, this turf back as far as, uh, you know, monetization or, or live events or whatever. It is. You guys need to claw some of this back. Um, and he was non-committal about that. And I understand his position. But the thing is that, yeah, that they need to be working together to create some kind of more professional 
environment where you don't have ex players like Ocelot or um, you know, like like Lena Shu of TSM or Reginald Din, um, you know, kind of ruining, muddying the waters essentially with you know unprofessional behavior. And I mean, you know, that's that's a hard line to push. It's you know, it's and it's it's amorphous. So people don't really know what you want when you say that. Um, it's the same reason that tech industry workers won't unionize, right? They're like, well, what are we doing this for? We don't need it. So it's yeah, it's it's kind of a situation where it's like, hey, we need to create this to solve off or solve potential problems. Uh, and it's hard to sell people on the severity of those potential problems. Agreed. Agreed. Again, if you're joining us here live, you have any questions for Lowell, uh, feel free to type those in the chat. Both of us can see the chat stream and, and both he and I are glad to answer anything that, you know, any of those questions that you have. Uh, while we're, we're waiting on some of those, to shift over to the metaverse side of this conversation, um, you did leave one of the top teams and organizations in the global ecosystem to go yeah. do your own thing. So right. talk about the inspiration for that and then help everyone understand what it is your new company does. Yeah. So, um, you know, I, I love Gen G and I, they were an amazing company. Everyone there was fantastic. Um, the reason I left was actually because I saw an opportunity to uh, honestly work with them again uh, and just under a different you know circumstance. I think that the metaverse is going to be a huge opportunity right now. It's, it's still very nascent. It's very young. Um, but the reason that I founded Fox and Farthing was because I wanted to create a metaverse design studio. Um, and you know, like for example, if you want a world-class logo, you go to Pentagram in New York, or you go to Kermayev, Geismar Haviv in New York. If you want a Super Bowl ad spot, you go to Blind in Los Angeles, like best in the world. And for me, I wanted, if you wanted a spot in the metaverse, you came to Fox and Farthing. Um, and that was kind of the motivation behind starting this. I, you know, this is not me trading my time for money or just a one man thing. I wanted to make the next iconic VR design firm or the first iconic VR design firm. Um, and so far the, the, the reception has been fantastic. I've, I've gotten to talk with Don Carson. Um, in case you don't know who that is, I brought him on as a advisor for our company. He is the original designer of Disney world. He designed every ride at Disney world, um, back in the nineties and then he, or eighties. And then he also, has designed a he designed a Shrek uh, theme park, which was pretty amazing. It never made the light of day, apparently, but I would have loved to see that. Yeah. Um, he designed some stuff for Hayao Miyazaki, so it was cool to talk to him. I, I'm really interested in bringing on more people with uh, diverse skill sets like that. So I've been reaching out to uh, Imagineers, theme park designers, people that have skills that are not just 3D design, because I think that in the metaverse. Uh, there's going to be really a reward or a huge need for to design that's kind of different. Um, right now, if you go to Decentraland and you look around, the buildings are mostly just office buildings, you know, and that's fine, but that's incredibly boring as well. I would like to see the metaverse being used in a more wild way. The movie is bad, but Ready Player One style creative uh, you know, use for it rather than just being, hey, this is more offices. Hey, this is a cafe that you can't drink anything at like i get it okay so 
Um, yeah, if you guys have VR, uh, actually, Fox and Farthing is uh, in the final stages of launching uh, a virtual world, which is going to be our office. And if you want to have a consultation with us, we're going to be meeting in, in the virtual world, in the metaverse, um, which I think will be really exciting. But yeah, I, I wanted to start something that I thought would have an impact. And um, yeah, so far it's been very difficult to explain to my parents <laughs> and my grandparents. Uh, but I'm sure that it's it was the same for Jeff Bezos trying to explain why he left his job at a hedge fund to start an online book selling company, right? Not that I'm Jeff Bezos by any means, but, you know, kind of in that same vein. Yeah, I was telling you before, you know, I, I produced, which I believe is the first HBCU, that's historically black college and universities, um, esports event inside the metaverse oh, a wow. year ago um, in Decentraland of all places. And so I, I we had to do a walking tour to get an understanding of like what district we were in. And a gentleman there has built up his, he purchased his district and he actually put like conference centers in like an amphitheater and, and like a, a concert hall, like all this stuff to look like mimic a real life, you know, conference area. And we ended up, he, he not we, he put together like a, probably the equivalent of like a three story tall widescreen projector. So we were able to broadcast like a Madden tournament there. And awesome. we had the conference. It was a hybrid event. So uh, here in St. Pete, we went over to St. Pete College and mm-hmm. recorded it through Zoom there and then broadcast it through his servers uh, into the, the central land, into the metaverse, so that people could go into his physical um, conference center, into his arena, and sit in the seats or stand like on the floor and look at the screen and see the conference. That is, that's, yeah, it's amazing. That's exactly what we're looking to do. So uh, I've been building up my team over the last few months. We officially launched in December, but yeah, we've been, that's what we've been building towards. So we've already got a couple of clients uh, in the pipeline that we're working on and we're going to bring some really exciting stuff to the metaverse. Hopefully as it matures, I think that, you know, it's still very, very young. And I honestly think that Apple is going to be the tipping point for the metaverse, but I guess that's, that's a whole other conversation. Or maybe it's Sony. I, I want to, you know, yeah. we're, we're going to do about another 10 minutes here because yeah. I, we're, we're shifting the focus or the format to more 45 minute episodes and, and in respect of your time as well. But I'm sure you heard the big news about Microsoft acquiring uh, Activision Blizzard. Yeah. And apparently I didn't know about this until about an hour and a half ago or so. It caused Sony's stock price to tank because <laughs> yeah. we thought that basically Microsoft had won the console wars. And then when I saw people saying that it had tanked, I don't know if you know Sebastian Burton. He's the co-host of, of the E for Life podcast. Uh, he has his own book, Esports Unlocked. He said that he saw it as an opportunity because Sony has always fundamentally been a hardware company. And Microsoft has always fundamentally been a software company and and we need the hardware basically in order to get the accessibility. And then the other thing that we have talked about on the podcast that I immediately remembered was that Sony has already had already built their own metaverse like PlayStation Home. It was a decade ahead of its time. Absolutely. They could just basically flip the light switch on that and game over. Yeah, exactly. I think that uh, that's that's really interesting to me. I'm I'm very excited about the Microsoft purchasing Activision Blizzard. Um, I think you know it sounds crazy. I think it's actually really good for gamers. Um, I'm very anti 
monopoly for you know a lot of things. But I think in this case, Activision Blizzard was about three years away from bankruptcy in in my estimation. Um, being purchased in this sense meant that those games are going to come under the the head or the leadership of of Phil Spencer, who's been a fantastic lead, uh, lead at Xbox. And now he's the head of Microsoft Gaming. It's going to make the Game Pass. If you guys are not Game Pass subscribers, 100%. They're not paying me. I wish they were. But <laughs> go be a Game Pass subscriber. It's the best 15 bucks a month you'll spend besides Spotify or Netflix. It's just fantastic as far as the games that you can play, which also means Overwatch is going to be heading to Game Pass as well as probably World of Warcraft, mm-hmm. uh, which is incredibly exciting, I think. Um, but yeah, I think that'll that'll be overall positive. As far as Sony is concerned, I have two issues, and um, one is I've worked in in Korean companies before. I know Japanese companies are very similar. Um, they tend to be obviously it's it's not just a waterfall structure; it's a frozen waterfall structure. It's very top down, um, and I think that it depends on who's in charge at Sony, mm-hmm. as far as uh, how quickly they can adapt. You've seen the same thing from a lot of other Japanese companies that have absolute gold on their hands and it kind of slips away because they don't move quickly enough. We've got Konami who's thrown away basically 30 years of, of gaming history, just, you know, kind of sitting on their thumbs. You've got um, Bandai Namco who have been sitting on Tekken 7 and that's pretty much it for the last few years. So they got out of consoles. Yes, <laughs> exactly. Right. So it kind of makes you wonder like how fast can they move? Sony, I am a fan of Sony. I love Sony. I, I hope that they can capitalize on PSVR. For me, what would make it mainstream is it needs to be standalone. Um, and they've done the PSP and PS Vita. They can do standalone hardware. I would love to see them make PSVR into something standalone that you can just plug and play. Um, I think that that would be the step they need to get into the metaverse. But it's clear that uh, Microsoft is looking to get into that as well. So it looks like we're going to have, it's going to be a new console war. I mean, Microsoft has said they're not fighting a console war. I think that every set of goggles is going to have their own app store. Every app store is going to have its own metaverse. So that'll be the kind of the defining feature, right? Which, which goggle do you have? Can we play together? Um, and will they play nice? Apple, you know, probably they've already said they don't want to play nice. That's just Apple, but Microsoft probably wants to. We'll see. Yeah, and maybe it'll take just, you know, that breakout game to force that interoperability, right? It's the same thing yeah. that Rocket League did for crossplay. We didn't have crossplay until Rocket League. Or maybe it was Fortnite. Some combination of Fortnite and Rocket League created <laughs> crossplay. Yeah, well, I, I mean, Microsoft has, has been trying to be the only not evil part of Fang. I don't know, are they in Fang? I guess not. There's no M. But, you know, no. the only not evil guy in uh, Silicon Valley. With yeah. their whole, hey, Sony, let's play together, right? And Sony's like, no, never, right? <laughs> just kind of leaving them out in the cold. But, you know, I, it's, it's hard to say. I, I think, is Sony dead? No. But pretty much every iconic gaming IP now belongs to Microsoft. So, you know, unless Sony can, can innovate pretty quickly, I, we'll see. We'll see what's going to happen. Um yeah, it, it's. I guess it's anyone's guess right now. Honestly, if I if I told you I knew what was going to happen, I'd be lying. Yeah, thanks, Steve. I'm glad you're enjoying this. And John says he'll be working with over 50 young designers from local Roblox club to create a game in Roblox, designed and built by kids. Excited to see where it goes and, and to help the next generation of metaverse builders. That's 
vitally important and, and reminds me that I have concerns about the Roblox ecosystem. Uh, I have heard that it's exploitative. Yeah. Um, that, that it's basically loot boxes on steroids, basically psychologically engineered to like extract every potential endorphin and dollar out of unsuspecting youth. I, I think that, yeah, I've heard that as well. I think that um, I mentioned this in my, my paper, if you guys get a chance to read it, that the people you should be hiring are not going to be 3D designers. You don't, you don't need to hire 3D designers or game designers. You need to be looking for 14 to 17-year-old kids who have spent their whole life playing Minecraft and Roblox because these kids have been building their own games in what are called discrete building, uh, discrete building software, right? Software development kits. That are like in Minecraft, you don't need to code, right? But you can code with Redstone and whatever else and create your own uh, experiences. Same thing with Roblox. These kids have learned how to code with Scratch or you know code blocks, and they can they can program their own games without ever touching C sharp. And so, yeah, John, this is a fantastic opportunity because you are working with the real builders of the metaverse. These are going to be the kids that create absolutely mind-blowing creations for uh, metaverse applications whether it's i mean building in uh, horizon worlds i don't know if you guys have an oculus quest um when you're building in it you aren't coding you can program things to happen but you've got your two controllers and you're building stuff like like you're painting um and i think that's going to be really vital for the future development of the metaverse for sure Yeah, that's yeah, that's exactly what I'm talking about, right? So these kids are going to be the next prodigies. These are the kind of people I'm scouting are not necessarily game development grads. They're Minecraft YouTubers. <laughs> so uh, I think you're on the right track. That, that's interesting, too, because I think it, it flips the entire paradigm on, like, the value of, of I guess, art degrees. Yeah. You, you're leading the path where, and Sebastian says this all the time, experience over education. Yeah, so exactly. it will challenge universities to redefine what their value proposition is to their customers, students. If students can leverage their earned skills and experiences prior to graduating from high school to go get a job at a company like yours. Yeah, exactly. I, I think, you know, I, I'm, I'm a fan of education. I think it's fantastic for everyone. I think mm-hmm. everyone should go to college. But um, it is sad to see universities not offering the value for the cost that we're seeing today. Uh, and they're not moving fast enough. There's just, you're learning as technology speeds up. If you go to school for a tech degree, you're learning 10 year old tech at the minimum, you know, mm. um, these programming grads are still starting with Java. <laughs> it's just like, and what, I mean, I know it's used for enterprise, but like, you know, what's going on with how, how are you going to learn for the future when you can't even learn the past? Right. And then one more thing before we go. And again, if anyone has any questions, we still got a few minutes left for you to ask that. I wanted to hear your thoughts about um, equity in the metaverse. You, you saw I posted that two minute clip from the interview with Dr. King. Yeah. And I, unfortunately, I think that in some ways, especially in the metaverse ecosystem, we're worse off than we were 60 years ago. And just yesterday, the Senate voted against uh, basically reinstating <laughs> the voters' rights that we received in the civil rights movement. So literally taking a step back 60 years. And then I think about, like, in order to be in blockchain and crypto in the early days, you had to have a high-performing gaming computer in order to use the 
the GPU, right, to mine crypto. Right. And historically, the urban community, Black and Latinx, did not have high-performing gaming computers. Like, yeah. I just got one now as a gift, and I'm 36. Like, right. my entire young adult and adult life, I've only exclusively played on on console and in the arcade. So if you've got that lack of inclusion and equity in crypto, which is now paired with gaming, which still has its own equity issues, becoming the metaverse, it I just see like this dystopian kind of slave scenario where like all the land in the metaverse is now purchased up and the only thing you can do is become like a gold farmer or the, the digital equivalent of cotton picking. Right. Yeah. No. And I think that that's, that's an incredibly valid um, criticism of it all. And I think, unfortunately, that points to our, you know, our, our Silicon Valley overlords and their generosity, but it also points away from crypto. Um, I, you know, I'm, I'm very privileged. My family, I grew up very poor. My family ended up um, making something of themselves as a whole. So I, I, I'm now in a you know middle-class family. Um, I myself, I'm not very rich. I can't afford a, a house or anything. The, the thing that I've argued with people about is you say, oh yeah, you should buy this house in the metaverse, right? It's $13,000. Like I can't afford a house in the real world, dude. Why am I going to spend $13,000 on fake land? In what, in what like bourgeois universe are you living that you can blow $13,000 on something that doesn't exist? For me, you know, growing up getting, you know, having Christmases where I got bubble tape and Dollar Tree recorders, um, it's it's hard to like reconcile that. And I understand where you're coming from, you know, with equity. I felt the same thing. I grew up in Murray, Kentucky. It's a very small town in Western Kentucky, um, and yeah, I didn't have internet, right? And so when I would read stuff in Wired that's talking about the cloud back in like 2007. Like what cloud? Like how am I supposed to access Google Docs when I don't have Wi-Fi? You know, and it's just like it feels like there's a there is a disconnect between what I would consider to be like the the digital proletariat, which is what I think where we are, and you know the digital bourgeois. And I don't want to sound like a some kind of crypto communist. I'm not, um, <laughs> but yeah, as far as equity is concerned, I I do think that that's going to be an issue. I think that's why it points away from crypto. Apple for sure might have NFTs, but only if they can control it from, you know, from tail to tip, essentially. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I think that that's, you know, same thing with Microsoft that Phil Spencer said he's not interested in um, in NFTs, adding them to the platform. Tim Sweeney said he's not going to create anything uh, with Epic that has NFTs in it. They're going to allow them on the platform. That's it. Valve, again, has said they're not as well. I think that it's not going to be a thing. I think for right now you can go into Horizon World, you can make a world for free. <clears throat> and uh, if that world is good enough, Facebook will select it and give you part of $10 million from their fund um, if a lot of visitors go to it. You know, I think that that is equity. Now, there is a hardware cost. I'm hoping that there's some form, you know, libraries I think are going to be a bastion of of this they're going to provide access in some sense. The way that I remember checking my email at a library when I was a kid. Um, I think that as libraries start to get into VR, they're going to offer checkout and you'll be able to go to a library and use that. So I think in, in a sense, if you want to protect equity uh, in the metaverse, you'll need to protect libraries and 
And it sounds like such a weird anachronism, but I, I really think that's going to be where the equity is found for people that can't afford the understandably expensive hardware that's required for this. I agree with that 100 percent. I actually spoke on a panel about that last year saying, in, in my opinion, I believe that libraries have the potential to become like next generation arcades. Yeah. Like, I got to play on games in the arcade that I could never afford at home. Yeah. And, and people are already going there. It's, it's it's publicly funded. It's easily accessible. You know, yeah. it, it, and it, it becomes another gateway, just like the books there to tremendous knowledge and opportunity. Here's another thing is that people don't understand. Did you know that it is possible to directly donate to your local library? If you didn't know that, you can. And more than that, if you're spending, if let's say you have $100,000 in crypto and you're going to spend it on NFTs, maybe take 10, 15% of that, donate it to your library and offer, you know, tell them to buy 20 sets of Oculus Quests or whatever. And what you're doing is you're, as a crypto enthusiast or metaverse enthusiast, you're offering more opportunities for people, young people especially, to get into the world that you will profit from um, on a purely utilitarian standpoint. But also, you're, you know, you're kind of giving back to an environment to help not shut out people of color from you know, the future. Because like, people don't have laptops today or cell phones. How are they going to get a job? You just can't. If you don't have a cell phone, you can't get a job. Right. Uh, in 15 years, my goal as you know, as someone who is starting a company for the metaverse, I would prefer not to to shut people out of getting a job, period. Right. What am I going to do? Yeah. OK, we're going to meet in the metaverse. I don't have a VR goggles. <sighs> well, I'm sorry. We're going to have to go with someone else who's more suited to our company culture. Right. Mm-hmm. And I would hate to see that happen. I think that that's I, I think the metaverse is the great equalizer. And it shouldn't be another moat put between, um, you know, the poor and everyone else. It's powerful, man. Well, thank you for your time. Uh, again, this has been another episode of the Gamify Everything Beyond the Metaverse podcast. This is actually the reboot of episode five. You can find this episode uh, it, later this week or first next week on Spotify, Amazon, soon iTunes. If you want to learn more about the IDEO platform, you can go to gamify.gg. There's a platform here or account here on LinkedIn. There's a Discord. There's a Telegram. And I will post those links in the comments. Before we leave, Lowell, can you tell everybody where they can find you, how they can support you as well? Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, if you guys, obviously, I, I love connecting with people. If you want to send me a connection uh, request on LinkedIn, I'll accept all of them. I'm happy to do that. Um, I've got a personal website. I work as a UX designer on the side, uh, it's www.lowellstevens.com or my company's website is www.foxandfarthing.com. You guys can check me out there. Excellent. And I think we have some opportunities to do some work together this year too and, and next year. I look to hopefully get back to the central land or, or at least a metaverse to continue yeah. that series because I think it's so important to educate people and, and to dispel the the mistruths about blockchain crypto, both positive and negative. Yeah. Well, absolutely happy to collaborate on that at any time. Uh, It's been a pleasure talking with you, man. All right. Thanks. See you later. Thanks everybody for joining us live. See you later.